0: Church family, good to see you. Uh, I want to say thank you, and I, I, I think I should speak on behalf of the rest of the staff too. And if they get a chance to express their gratitude, thank you so much for your generosity and the Christmas gift you contributed to. Uh, what a blessing! Uh, love being part of the staff team. Love being your pastor, and uh, just so grateful for your uh, encouragement in in that financial way. So. Thank you for all who participated in that. Uh, I invite you to take your Bible, if you would, join me in the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Continuing this morning <clears throat> in our journey through, we're almost wrapping up here in the Gospel of John, uh, two more after this week, just to wrap up this uh, this Gospel. And then we'll be on to Genesis, that's, uh, that's the next plan. Flip back to the complete beginning of the Bible, and we'll, we'll spend some time in Genesis. But for now, Gospel of John, chapter 21, 1 through 14. I invite you to read along in your own Bibles. If you do not have your own, you want to use one of the church Bibles, you're going to find that on, on page 907. 907 in the church Bible. Let's give our attention to God's Word as it is being read. And this is the Word of God. We are thankful that we get to have it in hand and so easy access to it. As we prepare uh, for the preaching of the Word, I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer. Our prayer, Father, is that you would teach us your way, that we would walk in your truth, that you would unite our hearts, to fear your name. Your word, Father, is our daily bread. Apart from it, we would starve and die. Yet because you have spoken, we can thrive. You make us through this word wise to salvation. Through this word, you sanctify us. Make us more like your Son. And this word puts the spotlight on Him, the Lord Jesus, through whom we have eternal life. And Father, as the one now tasked with proclaiming this truth, I need divine help. We need you, by your Spirit, to plant this word deep within us and bring about the change that only you can accomplish in us. So Lord, would you give us all hearts and minds and attitudes that are ready to hear from you. And we pray that Christ would get all of the glory. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Some of you know, we were were out with COVID. So it's good to be back. I'm really thankful to the Lord that our symptoms were were very mild, and I know that for some it is very dangerous, so I'm not minimizing that. Um, Given how contagious this thing is uh, and how uh, medically vulnerable people respond, we, of course, had to isolate. And this is my own experience, and permit me some whining. (laughs) I think the isolation was probably worse than the virus. That isolation from family and friends made for an unusual uh, and a little sad Christmas day, i got to say. Um, now, we were able to actually celebrate yesterday as a family, but, but that was yesterday, and we didn't know yesterday would happen the way it did until early yesterday. So um, I wrote this whining without the knowledge of that in mind. <laughs> but it was a little sad. Um, Christmas dinner, tasteless as it seemed to us, uh, We tossed some out the front door so Jacob and Leah could enjoy some. Well, Okay, I'm being a little extreme there. But we felt, I think, unclean. Uh, Somebody dropped a gift at the door and I I felt compelled to say, unclean, unclean, like a, a leper of years gone by. We were unclean because we were unfit to be with other people. We were unfit to be with you on Christmas Eve. We were unfit to be with our children on Christmas Day and our grandchildren. We were unfit to be here worshiping with you last Sunday. Unfit for fellowship with other people. Unfit to be part of normal life. Okay, I get it. I'm being a little dramatic. But as I was wallowing in my admittedly completely unjustified self-pity, because Christmas Day was a little sad, I was thinking of this passage, and I was thinking of Peter and his disciples. I really think that they felt unfit to be near Jesus. Not many days earlier before the text we looked at here, Jesus had been crucified. Just before that, Peter had denied even knowing Jesus. Then he was tried in a kind of a kangaroo court, Jesus was. He was hoisted up on that Roman cross to die alone, forsaken by his countrymen, forsaken by his own disciples. Now, we know, of course, Peter was a very vocal denier of Jesus, but they had all abandoned Jesus, all of the disciples, because Jesus said they would. Mark 14, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, in our text, John describes that that seven of Jesus' disciples are at the Sea of Tiberias, and that's just another way of describing the the Sea of Galilee. That's what they called it at the time of John's writing. This place in the northern part of the the region, um, it's that place where Jesus walked on water. It's that place where Jesus taught, unless you eat of my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. It's where, where Jesus asked the disciples In response to his very challenging teaching, if they would leave too, and the disciples affirmed, no, we won't go anywhere. You have the words of eternal life. So why are they there in this region of Galilee? Well, it's because Jesus told them that he would be there. In fact, when Jesus told the disciples that that they would abandon him, when Jesus gave them that news, he also told them in that same context that he would see them later. Verse 28 of Mark 14. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And in case the disciples might have forgotten, Mark records that at the empty tomb, the angel there reminded the women to tell the rest of the disciples that Jesus had in fact said it, that he would be in Galilee. So here they are. They are in Galilee. What now? What now? Well, Simon Peter, we see in verse 3, said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. Now, I don't know how you read this. Some Bible commentators have suggested that Peter and the rest of the disciples have, in fact, abandoned their apostolic calling. That's, I had always thought that as a kid. In fact, when my uh, the pastor in the church where I grew up, in his Texas drawl, uh, I can still hear him quoting this from the ASV. I go a-fishing. <laughs> I go a-fishing. I remember, it rings in my ear, like it, like it was a bad thing that they went fishing. That's not a necessary conclusion. But they're in Galilee simply because Jesus told them he would be there. And what do fishermen do when they're hungry? You go fishing. But that said, in this setting, I can imagine, again, I'm, I'm trying to get into the experience of the disciples. I can imagine that the disciples felt a mixture of joy and shame. Of course, joy that Jesus had already shown himself alive, this is the third time, but shame for the fact that they had abandoned Jesus, just as he told them. And because of that shame, I think fellowship had been broken. And perhaps, perhaps they feel unfit to be with Jesus, unfit to serve him, unfit to even be around him, even as they anticipate seeing him. So here they are in Galilee. This is the place they were told to be at the same time they were told that they would not be faithful to Jesus. And I think Jesus is going to enter into that confusion and shame, and he's going to restore the fellowship that has been broken. So as we consider the experience of Jesus' disciples, I think we can find encouragement for each of us today for fellowship True fellowship with Jesus. True fellowship with Jesus happens when we listen to Jesus' word. True fellowship with Jesus involves declaring what Jesus has done. And true fellowship with Jesus ultimately receives from Jesus' hand. Those are my my, uh, headings this morning as we unpack this text. True fellowship means we listen to Jesus' word. True fellowship declares what Jesus has done. That's us declaring it. And true fellowship ultimately receives from Jesus' hand. First of all, true fellowship listens to Jesus' word. And I think we all get this. Um, there's a difference between merely hearing and listening. And my wife's ears are going to perk up right now. Because over 35 years of marriage, it has taught me that for there to be harmony in our relationship, we have to listen to one another. And this is where I mess up so often. Kathy will tell me something. I will hear it but I've not really attended to what she said. (laughs) And then conflict happens, right? And fellowship is broken. I have to repent of that. I have to say, sorry, I wasn't, wasn't paying attention. I wasn't taking it to heart. Fellowship is ultimately broken if I do not take to heart what I hear her say. And really, that's true, isn't it? It's true in any relationship, not just marriage. And it's so true when it comes to fellowship With Jesus, our relationship with the Lord Jesus, the strength of that fellowship is is truly listening to Jesus' word. Now, as we come back to the story before us, there's there's something strange but kind of satisfying about this unusual encounter between Jesus and his disciples. I'll read it again from verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now I say it's strange because they don't recognize Jesus at first. And and I'm trying to imagine the setting. It's early, it's daybreak, so it's a little dark, but not really dark. It's not really night, but not light. It's that in-between kind of time. But given how Jesus revealed himself beforehand, We can say with certainty that even if it was high noon, Jesus would not be known to his disciples unless he chose to reveal himself. That's the strange part. But it's also satisfying. Because the power of Jesus' word breaks through anyway. These men have been fishing all night. No success. And this stranger calls out from the shore, "'Children, do you have any fish?' Why does he say children? I mean, that way of addressing would certainly be appropriate for a parent to a child. But it's also appropriate for a leader to address followers, children, at least in that context. But here, there's no indication that they recognize Jesus. Yet he is addressing them as followers. And this stranger on the shore gives this fishing advice. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Again, this is the strangeness of this. I don't know about you, but but it seems like the strangest advice ever, doesn't it? We've all seen how schools of fish move. Have you seen video? If you've gone snorkeling, you you, you know how this works. It would take mere seconds from, from them to dart from one side of the boat to the other and back again. And in the time it would take to pull their nets out of the water and cast them on the opposite side of the boat, the school of fish could be long gone. Yet, it works. They find some. Not just some. They find many, 153 in all, John tells us. Now, why is it that they took Jesus' advice? Why didn't they just dismiss it like some stranger giving us some crazy advice? And here it is. I think it comes down to the fact that regardless of the topic, Jesus' words have authority. And Jesus' words ultimately reveal His person. So I'll say it more forcefully. If you don't listen to Jesus' words, you won't know him because Jesus' words reveal his person. Now, in the times past, these disciples had had already witnessed how Jesus' words had authority to heal the sick, to restore sight to the blind, to restore usefulness to the legs of one who was lame to change the weather, to raise the dead. In addition, the words having, Jesus' words having authority. Jesus' words revealed his identity. He claimed that he and the Father are one, John ten thirty. Jesus claimed that he had the authority to lay down his own life and take it up again. So, when Jesus said to cast the nets on the right side of the boat, the disciples obeyed. <laughs> and the fish also had to obey. They had to swim right into that net because Jesus' words have authority. To have true fellowship with Jesus, you have to listen to his word. And listening to Jesus' word means putting what he says into practice, even if by the world's standards, those words seem absurd, like, cast your net on the right side of the boat. Now, if we think about Jesus' words and his authority, what, kinds of, what other kinds of things did he say that the world would go, are you out of your mind? Jesus said not to worry about stuff. Jesus said not to worry about the things that you think you need to live. Rather, Matthew 6.33, seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Does that kind of word make any sense to somebody who doesn't know Jesus? Jesus said, don't seek revenge from your enemies. Rather, Matthew 5.44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those words seem absurd to the world. Now, we all know it's possible to hear and not to listen. (laughs) My own example with my wife. It's possible to to take in Jesus' word but never apply it. Listening to Jesus' words but but disregarding those words, the Bible tells us, is an exercise in self-deceit. James says this. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, to have true fellowship with Jesus, you need to take his words to heart. And the first word you need to take to heart is the word that he speaks about himself, that he is the Son of the Father. What the Scripture reveals about Jesus as the divine Son of God, the word who became flesh, as John tells us at the beginning of this Gospel, The word who became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could see, behold His glory. Glory is the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word about Jesus that He lived a life of sinless perfection. The word about Jesus that He died, not for anything He had done, but for the sins of all of us who put our trust in him. And in dying, he killed the power of that sin over us. He emerged from that tomb on the third day to guarantee eternal life and a new body for all who would put their faith in him. To have true fellowship with Jesus, it starts in acknowledging that. And let me ask you, have you acknowledged that? That he's done that for you but then having believed that. We still need Jesus' words. We still need His word. We still need to find fellowship with Him by taking His word. So that's why we make a priority of reading our Bibles, right? And let me encourage you, as you read your Bible, don't just read to get through it. I'm guilty of that sometimes because I got my Bible reading plan. Read it that you may see Jesus. Because the scriptures reveal him to us. And if you want fellowship with Jesus, you're going to find it in the word. So again, that's why we have those Bible reading plans. We want you to have fellowship with Jesus. And when you hear, when you hear the Bible preached or taught, because I know how this is, we can use our energy to evaluate the one who's doing the preaching rather than thinking beyond the human that is there. We need to look beyond the man and look for Christ. So know this, every time you attend to the Scriptures, it's the voice of Jesus. He is the Word of God, and it's the key to fellowship with Jesus. Fellowship with Jesus means we listen to His words. Fellowship with Jesus, second... Means we declare what Jesus does. We declare what Jesus does. Now, when I was a teenager, my dad and I rebuilt a, uh, a, a car, a sports car. It was a Triumph Spitfire, for those of you who care. It's a little British thing, it had a little four banger engine, a tiny thing. It's the, the engine itself is smaller in displacement than the twin on my Harley. So that's how small this engine was. Anyway, we replaced the convertible, we, pra- we fixed the seating upholstery. The last thing we did was rebuild the engine, and by that time, my father had i become ill with cancer, so he wasn't able to be as involved, and I had to do some things of my own. Anyway, uh, I got the thing to run, but it never ran right. It was just off. It just didn't, you know, it sputtered and didn't work. And I spent weeks on it, just pouring over this thing, looking through the manual, trying to figure out how to do it. I felt like those fishermen fishing all night. I know what I'm supposed to do. Just put the net in the water, you get the fish. I know what I'm supposed to do. You look at the manual, you hook this thing up this way, it should work, but it didn't, and I was failing. I decided to to drive it sputtering and lurching over to the mechanic uh, at the gas station where I used to pump gas and change oil. Well, I talked to Rich, he was the mechanic, and he popped open the hood, moved a couple wires around, and it purred like a kitten. I'd got the firing order mixed up, and if you guys who know cars you got to get the firing order right. I couldn't, when my dad asked me, how did you get it running? I couldn't claim any credit. I had to say, Rich. Rich did it. That would be the only obvious thing. Rich figured it out. Now, I, I think of this because the disciples tried all night. They tried all night, and they caught nothing. They were seasoned fishermen. They knew what they were doing, but they still came up empty. And Jesus had a better plan. Verses 6 and 7. So they cast it. That is the net. And, and now they were not able to haul it, so they put it on the right side of the boat because of the quantity of fish. Verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment for his for work and threw himself into the sea. There was no mistake at this point why they were successful. No mistaking. The disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's John's way of referring to himself, he said, it is the Lord. Now, just park on that statement. It is the Lord. What is he saying? It's, yes, it's the realization that it was, in fact, Jesus standing on the shore. It is the Lord. That's who it is. But it's also the reason that they caught the fish, right? It's the declaration that Jesus is the one who miraculously provided for that abundant catch. It's the Lord. It's Jesus. Why are we catching all of this fish? It is the Lord. What Jesus had done for his disciples was the very foundation of their relationship with him. Look through the Gospels. Look for some occasion where the disciples did anything for Jesus. I, I, and maybe you'll find something. I couldn't find anything. What Jesus had done for his disciples was the very foundation of their relationship with him. And that is true for all of us. The foundation of our fellowship with Jesus is not what we might do for him, but what he has already done for us. That is what defines us. So, Why do you have confidence that your sins are forgiven? It's the Lord. Why do you have peace? It's the Lord. And for those who suffer, and some of you suffer greatly, how do you have joy in the midst of that suffering? It's the Lord. And for those of you who or closer, or feeling your own mortality, all of us, really, why are you not afraid of what's beyond the grave? It's the Lord. You see, true fellowship with Jesus ultimately acknowledges to Him, to Jesus, what He has done. But we also acknowledge what Jesus has done before others. So we who are present-day followers of Jesus, present-day disciples, Because and for the sake of our fellowship with Jesus, we declare what He has done. So that's why this day is called the Lord's Day. That's why we make it a priority to gather in Jesus' name on the Lord's Day. That's why we sing about Jesus when we gather. That's why the gospel is the main thing we talk about here. We're declaring. What Jesus has done. And here's what happens when we declare what Jesus has done. Look again at the text. John said, it's the Lord. It is the Lord. What, is ha- what happens next? Verse 7, Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. He couldn't even wait to row ashore. You see, as a result of John declaring it's the Lord... Peter was drawn to Jesus. I know it's a small thing. It's the Lord, Peter goes. All the disciples row in. It's the Lord. We've got to get to him. So anytime, anytime we declare what Jesus has done, people are drawn to him. Anytime we declare to each other what Jesus has done, we're drawn to him. Why we're here, brothers and sisters. We, you, you have the knowledge that Jesus is Savior and Lord, but when you come together with God's people and we hear that declaration from each other's voices, it, it's bigger. I mean, nothing's different physically, but it becomes magnified in our minds and it enriches fellowship with the Lord Jesus and each other. So so think about this. When you consider all that Jesus has done for you, can you stay away? Are you not drawn to him? And if you're not drawn to him, let me just ask you to ask yourself, if you're not drawn to him, I would suggest that it's because you haven't considered what he has done for you. So what has Jesus done? Well, he's revealed his glory. Glory is the only begotten Son of the Father full of grace and truth. He has revealed that, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. What else has he done, as has he done? Well, we understand that Jesus was given to us by the Father who so loved the world, so that we could put our own faith in him and not perish, but have eternal life. Just park there. Ponder what he has done. What else has he done? Jesus lived righteously so that his death would absorb the wrath of God for our own sin. And Jesus lived righteously so that that righteousness could be given to us as a gift which makes us acceptable to the Father. And we declare all of these things, all that Jesus has done, because he said as well that he would draw people to himself on the foundation of what he has done. I'll remind you of what it says in John 12. Jesus said this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So every time we declare who Jesus is as the Christ, every time we declare him as the Son of God, every time we declare what he has done, that he has died in our place for our sin, rising again to give us eternal life, he draws our hearts and the hearts of others to himself. Fellowship with Jesus declares what he has done. Finally, fellowship with Jesus receives from Jesus' hand. Receives from Jesus' hand. Um, There's an idiomatic expression. I'm sure you're familiar with it. The elephant in the room. We all understand that this refers to a huge matter that everyone is aware of, but no one is talking about, right? So, example, your teenage son asks to use the car. He gets home after you've gone to bed. In the morning, you go out to the garage and see the front fender is damaged. Clearly, it happened because he was careless, but he hasn't said anything. What do you do, Dad? (laughs) Do you wait? Do you wake him up and ask him about it, or do you just carry on with your day? The damage to the car is the elephant, right? Now, if I'm the dad, I'm quite sure I'd be looking for an immediate explanation. If I'm the son, I'm waiting in fear for that conversation because I've been that son and I've done that to the car. (laughs) So I know what that's like. And I'm wondering if I'll ever be able to use the car again. Now, John tells us here in verse 14 of our text that this is the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the grave. Now, if you look at those previous visitations, John's description of those is quite brief. And now we can't really know if Jesus was with his disciples for a short or long time. But John simply records what we need to know. But here, if I try to imagine the experience of the disciples, and I'll ask you to allow me some maybe sanctified imagination. The disciples know that they had abandoned Jesus. They're in Galilee Because Jesus told them that he would meet them there at the same time that he told them they would abandon him. So, Galilee, this region, and their own rejection of Jesus are connected. So, if I'm one of them, I've got to be wondering okay, I guess we got to deal with it. We're probably going to deal with the fact that we failed him. Do we bring it up? Does he bring it up? How's this going to go down? Now let me recap. The disciples arrive at Galilee, Peter decides to go fishing, the others follow, fishing all night, they catch nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus resolves their problem, re- resolves their problem, gives them a the miraculous catch, and he reveals himself in the miracle. Verse 9. Peter is now at the shoreline with Jesus and the rest follow with the boat. See what happens here, verse 9. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, "Bring some of the fish that you have just caught." Now this may not be hugely significant, but the last time and only other time that John mentions a charcoal fire using those words is when Peter was warming himself by it in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. What happened there? That's where Peter denied even knowing Jesus to a servant girl. Now, it's an obscure connection, I'll grant that. But given the circumstances, it could compound the tension. If not to Peter personally, at least to the reader, charcoal fire. What happened last time we saw one of those? Well, what happens next? Jesus says, come have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples asked who you are. They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Now this is obvious in the text here, what is not being said. We have no discussion of any kind that Jesus had with his disciples about how, after they had failed him, that they did so. Maybe the next section where Peter asks, or Jesus asks, Peter, do you love me? Maybe, but he doesn't dwell on his failure. But what happens here? Does Jesus want them to explain themselves? Does he want them to grovel? No. Jesus makes sure his disciples know that he is welcoming them. He has already prepared a meal for them. He invites them to eat breakfast. And the only thing, get this, the only thing he asks of them is to supply some fish. Fish that Jesus had just given them. They didn't have anything of their own to bring. So here's the application point. Jesus invites us to his table to receive from his hand. He supplies everything we need. And whatever he might ask of us, it is only what he's given to us in the first place. And so I ask myself, why didn't Jesus deal with the elephant in the room? Why didn't he deal with the elephant in the room? because there was no elephant as far as he was concerned. The disciples' failure to stand by Jesus, Peter's obvious public disowning of Jesus, the elephant in the room, all that was covered at the cross. Everything Jesus needed from his disciples is what he had already given them. Now, At this point, I want to pause here because I don't want to gloss over the necessity of repentance. We don't have expressions of that, but Jesus knew the heart of his disciples. But understand this. True repentance is not something that we conjure up on our own through a force of will. It's, in fact, a gift that we receive. Repentance, our repentance, is a gift that we receive along with the forgiveness that Jesus gives Jesus gave that repentance to his disciples. And if he's given that to you, if he's given you a repentant heart, that's the assurance that you have received forgiveness. Your repentance is a gift given to you when you receive forgiveness. Again, you don't produce it yourself. You don't produce repentance before the Lord for your own sins. God does that in you when you hear the word of truth. The Apostle Paul gets this too. Listen to how he describes to Timothy what happens when someone who had been bent on evil hears the word of God taught. He tells Timothy, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. God may perhaps grant them repentance. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So God had already granted the disciples this heart of repentance. They had the knowledge of the truth sitting right before them, giving them breakfast. You see, true fellowship with Jesus is something that he initiates. He wants you to, At his table, he wants you to receive from his hand. Now, the disciples, they received bread and fish from Jesus' hand, but they had so much more, a much greater evidence of his welcome, which are his words Jesus' words. The very Word of God, who became flesh, gives of himself to us every time we hear his word. This is the substance of what Jesus was teaching when he said this, John 6, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Of course, Jesus didn't mean physically eating his flesh. But hearing him and taking his words to heart are how we find life. And he says, I will raise him up on the last day. Now these words were jarring for the crowds that that heard it and most of those who were following Jesus at the time, they turned away. But the disciples knew otherwise. They knew that the things that Jesus was saying meant eternal life for them. Brothers and sisters, Jesus gives when he speaks. Jesus gives when he speaks and when Jesus speaks, we live and thrive. So that even The things that we need, we know before God to please the Lord. He freely gives to us so that we can. What Josh quoted in the children's moment, God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises, words, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. God gives. Jesus' words are what we receive when we have fellowship with Him. Now, it's a temptation, I understand, to think of ourselves as having what we need. That, that you're tracking well. That you're going to do all right. You know, you've, you've got a foundation in the church. You've got, you've got some good discipleship behind you. To, to kind of take your eyes off Christ himself, thinking that, we, that well, we're okay without him, without his word. This is what the church in Laodicea was doing. You look... Revelation chapter 3. They were self-sufficient. They thought they needed nothing at all. They commended themselves for being rich. And, but Jesus came to them with a rebuke. Their lukewarmness was sickening to Jesus. And, and the remedy, the remedy, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. If anyone hears my voice. The substance of our fellowship with Jesus is not what we do for him. It's what he has done for us and what he continues to do for us through his word. And Jesus is holding out his hand to you with the meat of his word, saying, take it, eat it. Jesus, who died in our place, is alive. And he welcomes you to his table to have fellowship with him. So brothers and sisters, simple exhortation. Let's continue to listen to Jesus' word. Let's continue to declare to one another what He has done and know that fellowship with Jesus continues as we continue to receive from His hand what He has given. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, for, um, for Jesus. And... The fellowship that we have with him ultimately means fellowship with you and a participation in the very divine nature. We thank you for what Jesus accomplished in dying and rising again. Lord, may we continue to have our ears ready to hear what Jesus says through his word. Lord, would you make us willing and ready and eager to declare among us and to the world around us what he has done. And Lord, remind us that continuing fellowship is all about what Jesus gives to us in his word. So we thank you for that, Father. Strengthen us to be faithful and to be those kinds of people that ultimately bring glory to your Son, our Savior, Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.